0: Podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. Well, today we are going to talk uh, about the importance of biblical manhood, of developing boys into men. And I'm going to do something uh, a little bit different um, today. Um, But uh, back in February of 2009, uh, which is 15 years ago now, uh, Dr. Jim Berg did a men's conference on the topic of biblical manhood, and I've had the MP3s from that conference for probably about that long, and this has been a resource that I have uh, directed men to uh, multiple times, and in my estimation, it really is uh, an invaluable resource, Uh, and really in the last few years, it's only grown to be uh, more important. Dr. Berg was seeing things um, back then uh, that were only beginning to become mainstream, and now uh, the things that he talks about in this uh, series um, really is something that we see uh, every day, and... uh, So I would say it's really even more essential than it was back then. Um, I did receive permission from Dr. Berg to post these audio files on the podcast, and so they're not altered at all, they're just exactly as I've received them. There are four parts to this series on biblical manhood, and I'm going to release one each week, uh, so for the next four weeks. Uh, And this, by the way, is not um, just for the men. Although it is primarily for, uh, men, uh, women of course need to hear these virtues extolled, um, and, uh, boys need to know what it is that they are supposed to become. Uh, and so I, I think that there'll be uh value for everyone, um, in, uh, in this series here. So, and maybe, I don't know, we'll, we'll turn this perhaps into a men's study somewhere down the line. Uh, we've talked about that in the past of, uh, maybe, um, putting these, uh, files out there and then, uh, meeting, here in town and discussing. So if anyone is, by the way, interested in being part of that, let me know. Uh, And oh, also I do have a PDF copy of the notes on this conference, and so if you want a copy of that, uh, just let me know and I'll send it your way. All right, enough rambling. Here is the first of four sessions on biblical manhood. Um, You might be asking
1: yourself, why is Berg talking about manhood and raising sons when all he's done is raise daughters? Well, that's, that's a fair question. When people do ask me that, say, well, you know, how do you know about anything about men? And uh, you've raised all daughters. And I say, well, I, I've spent all of my life as a man. Um, that one I do think I understand. I'm still trying to figure out some other things on, on the other one. But um, I do understand the men's situation. And this is of particular interest to me uh, because I have sons-in-laws who are raising my grandsons at this point. In fact, that's really, uh, although I've had a burden for this for some time uh, and talked in about it in orientation to our men's students, or our women's students as well. But it really became into more focus when, uh, when God gave our sons-in-laws and daughters uh, grandsons. And Bobby, my oldest grandson, is down here. He's in the front row here. He's an honorary man tonight. And uh, we're so glad to have him here Um, I don't come to you in this weekend in any kind of an expert uh, on this topic. Um, I am a fellow pilgrim sharing my notes, let me put it that way. Um, I do have, I counted this morning, I've got 28 books on my bookshelf on manhood and raising sons, and I've read most of them and several of them within the last several months here. And so I'm going to be drawing a lot from their materials so that you can see this isn't just Berg's idea either, but there are a lot of uh, there's been a lot of thought put in this, as, as, as even in the broader evangelical circles, we see, um, not just in fundamentalism, but broader evangelical circles, we, uh, many, many people are concerned about what is happening to the whole concept of manhood today. And a lot of men are writing about it and have some really good things to say. Um, so I'm, um, I'm, I'm sharing my notes in, in that respect. This is, this is not a series of lectures outlining a formula, for being a man or raising sons, um, although I hope you pick up some very practical things, but rather we're going to be discussing a portion of a biblical worldview that deals with where men fit into God's view of the world and what our place is and the kind of men we have to be to fulfill that calling that God has given us. And it's not only an understanding that we need for ourselves, but we need it for our, our sons and we need it for our grandsons and the other men that God calls us disciple along the way. So with that, open your uh, notes here. And there'll be uh, several sections, particularly tonight, but a little bit tomorrow morning, where I'm going to read some extended um, uh, quotes to, to help you get a flavor of why people are concerned about this and why we need to be concerned. Even if we're not fighting these battles ourselves, our sons are... And our sons' friends are the people that our sons hang around with, and uh, other men in our church. And sometimes, as Pastor mentioned, um, the women are better at, at at seeing the need for information and then rallying together and helping one another than we are. Sometimes we feel threatened by things like this, and um, because we're kind of you know we're kind of independent and we want to lead and. And uh, we just need to be teachable as well. Our, our wives are, are very good at that and m- most of the times in soaking up a lot of things like that. And, and then they get together and they help one another. And I hope we can spawn some of that uh, within our assemblies as well. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at some of the things that have happened in our culture that, uh, that make this a difficult battle. The first paragraph says, Largely the world has won the war in the broader culture against biblical help, headship and masculinity. Uh, ultimately, they haven't won it uh, because God is going to um, triumph in the end, but it looks, boy, just by the sheer numbers and by the sheer force of what is going on, like they, they have won this war. And we want to look at some of the forces that are working against biblical manhood. I want to start off with this idea of feminization of men sabotages the strength of manhood today. And there are a couple of extended quotes here from Stephen Ferrar. Many of you have read his book Point Man. He's got several others out. And this is his most recent one called King Me, What Every Son Wants and Needs from His Father. And I highly recommend this book to you. We'll have several copies back here. In fact, most of these books will have copies for you to purchase if you'd like to. And, and as I said, we'll have some extended quotes here because I want, I want you to see where we are. Um, Stephen Fryer is quoting Stephen Clark here, uh, describing the characteristics of feminized men today. He says, A feminized male is a, a ma- is a male who has learned to behave or react in ways that are more appropriate for a woman. The feminized male can be normal as a male with no tendencies to reject being male and no tendencies toward homosexuality. And yet he can have been so influenced by women... can have so identified himself with the world in which women dominate that many of his interests and traits are more womanly than manly. Compared to men who have not been feminized, he will place much higher emphasis and attention on how he feels and how other people feel. He will be much more gentle and handle situations in a soft way. Not that gentleness isn't an important quality, but predominantly that way in, in, in this man. He will be much more subject to the approval of the group, especially, especially emotionally expressed approval, that is, how others feel about him and what he is doing and how others react to him. He will sometimes tend to relate by preference to women and other feminized or effeminate men, and he will sometimes have a difficult time with an all-male group. He will tend to fear women's emotions and in his family and at work can be easily controlled by the possibility of women, like his mother, his wife, or co-worker, having an emotional reaction. He will tend to idealize women, and if he's religious, he will tend to see in women the ideal Christians or the definition of what it means to be spiritual. He will identify Christian virtue with feminine characteristics. A feminized man may have a character in which the traits of gentleness and quietness are stronger than the traits of aggressiveness and courage. And then I add this uh, emphasis here. uh, Feminization is a cultural pattern passed on to men, leading them to take a feminized approach to emotions, personal relationships, and values. This cultural pattern is passed on through the media, the school system, and the family, and has its greatest impact in childhood and adolescence. Unlike effeminacy, Feminization is not difficult to change. It mainly requires exposure to a new cultural pattern, new models, a new social environment, a new set of values. By the way, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood didn't help us with this. Um, I'm serious about that. Uh, He was a quintessential male mother, uh, image in a lot of respects and and really cut the guts out in a lot of respects of what it meant to be a man now there is a, there is a need for gentleness and there is a need for kindness and that kind of thing but this so exuded that that that's that it was like this is what men are all about and that is it that is a tragic thing um, kindness and gentleness are virtues but they have to grow out of courage and risk-taking and we'll talk about that later on or or they become virtues as kindness and gentleness and become excuses for cowardice and passivity. Um, And we see this this feminization in, in the males all around us. Men nowadays preen and primp like women, and, and, um, and subscribe to fashion magazines like women and they're concerned about their labels that they wear like women and concerned about the fragrances they wear and the images that they have. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't all wear a fragrance you know, now and then or that we you know, should cut the labels out of our... But, but, we are, but, but men today are more and more obsessed with this when that has been predominantly a feminine thing. And that's a sad... Movement. And this is a good bit of what these men are talking about when they address it. Um, they are largely sentimental and emotional, especially in their problem solving. Um, they are looking for sympathy and understanding a lot, like women might be. They whine and complain, like I should say, like, like women in, in that sense. Um, I, I was reading an article uh, to the students when I was talking about. Uh, 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 manhood to the freshman orientation and there's a, an article of a, of a, of a woman um, news writer and she was talking, it was Peggy Noonan and she was a syndicated columnist and she was writing about 9-11 and uh, she said, you know, you can say, well, it, you know, it's, it's she said, I, you know, I suppose today it's kind of hard to be a man today she said, women get to, now this is a woman saying this she said, women get to complain and whine and uh, about everything men have to suck it up and just handle it and that's true, but we're, we're in a feminized culture where everybody gets to whine and complain and all this kind of thing. And I'm not saying that that's right for women either, um, but there are a lot of tendencies that, have been, that the men have picked up on. Uh, they don't like to take risks today. A lot of men don't like to take risks. They like the safe journey. Um, they have lost the sense of adventure unless it's in extreme sports. But where things really count... In ministry to other people, in ministry to wives, in ministry to the children, in ministry in the church. They don't want to take risk. And they want everybody to, think, uh, to, to accept them and all this kind of thing. Just like women are very concerned about the emotions and the relationships around them. And um, men today recoil from commitment and evidence, little courage in their responses to life's challenges. And that's, that's predominantly across our culture. Um, Stephen Farrar goes on, he says, and and I mention here, just as frightening as what is happening in the feminization of worship in the church. Farrar says, I I do a lot of traveling and speak in churches all over our country. And he he doesn't run in our circles. Um, But he said, and I have observed a trend that disturbs me. It is a trend towards soft feminine worship. Now I have friends whom I respect and appreciate who are involved in leading churches with this approach. I don't question their heart or their motives. They want to honor Christ, but someone is influencing the concept of worship in a way that needs to be challenged. In many cases, the guy who's leading the worship is very soft spoken, quiet, and passive. He may or may not be that way off stage, but up front, that's the demeanor that is considered spiritual. When he prays, he prays softly. He doesn't lead out in prayer, he puts you to sleep in prayer. The style is one of devoted hesita- hesitation. The words are very halting. It's all very non-confrontational. Where is the confidence in prayer? Hebrews 4:16 lays it out there. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then when it comes time to sing, they turn down the lights. Why do they turn down the lights? They're trying to establish a mood. Let me let me make an observation here the worship of almighty god is not based upon mood it's based upon truth Then to keep the mood going they sing the same chorus over and over and over and over and over I was a guest in a church recently and they kept singing I could sing of your love forever and I actually thought they were going to I noticed the breakdown of the service they took 45 minutes setting the mood in worship then I was given not quite 30 minutes to teach the scriptures When the message was over, they got up and sang for 10 more minutes. That's 55 minutes setting the mood and 25 minutes for teaching truth. Something is seriously wrong here. And folks, he doesn't run in our circles. This isn't a raving fundamentalist who's saying this. This is a man with good observation of what's happening. He said, can you imagine the prophets of the Old Testament in a place like this? Can you imagine David or Peter or Jeremiah in a setting like this? In the Old Testament, they didn't turn down the lights and set a mood. They slit the throats of animals, poured out their blood, gutted their intestines, and burned them in fire. The sacrificial system is no longer with us because the Lord Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. But there was reality in that worship, and it was centered in the truth that sin is terrible and horrible and that forgiveness of sin was not cheap. These contemporary worship atmospheres are weak. So is is it my opinion that we should only sing hymns? No, let's sing worship courses, but let's make sure they have biblical content. The present trend gives a wrong impression of Christianity. A setting like that is feminine. A setting like that is for women, and it all seems so spiritual, but it isn't. Am I in a church or a spa? At a deal like that you don't bring your Bible, you bring your moisturizer. That's why I get so tired of songs that speak over and over the beauty of Christ. Now, that was in the phrase tonight with the men, but it was in a different context. The apostles never said he was beautiful, so why should we? There is beauty to his character, but that, is a distinct, that distinction is rarely made today. The impression of his beauty that is given today is feminine, but Christ was male, not female. One doesn't compliment a man by saying he's beautiful. The appropriate word in that context would be handsome. If you went up to John Wayne and said he was beautiful, he would separate several of your molars and bicuspids into a new world order. But if you said he was handsome, he would tip his hat and thank you for the kind word. If you're a woman, that is. Let's stop describing Jesus Christ in womanly terms. He is awesome, majestic, holy, and righteous. He is the Son of the Living God. He is the God man. Let's show him the proper respect and use masculine biblical terms to describe his greatness. And in the process, we won't be sending the wrong message about his person and character. On perhaps two different occasions, the Lord Jesus walked into the temple with a whip and commenced to drive out the commodity traders that had managed to extort office space in his father's house. And when he walked into that temple with that whip and started turning over tables, they didn't say, Look at his hair. I wonder who does his nails. Jesus was raised by Joseph in a carpenter shop, and he didn't buy his lumber at Home Depot. He cut his own trees and planed his own boards. As a result, he had some serious forearms, and he didn't have soft hands. He had calluses from doing hard physical labor. That's why they ran when he cleared out the temple. No one stood up to him. If you have any doubts about what Jesus really looks like, we have an eyewitness description from the Apostle John when he was exiled on Patmos. Read this description of Christ that is recorded in Revelation nineteen eleven to 16, as he returns to the earth for the second time, and read it slowly. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't see anything in there about shampoo and moisturizers. And John never mentions that Christ was beautiful. So let's learn from a man who actually saw him and let us not sin by misrepresenting him to our sons. Well, those are some pretty astute observations. The most notable characteristics of the God-man Jesus Christ has to do with his strength. But the strength is not a reckless, mean-spirited, nor self-serving strength. It is a righteous strength, strength that uses itself rightly for a right cause. And that's going to be our model. Not only is the feminization of men sabotaging the strength of manhood today, but the teen mindset sabotages the strength of manhood today. And I've used some of this material in Essential Virtues this last summer. We'll repeat a little bit of it here. This is from a book by David DeWitt called The Mature Man, Becoming a Man of Impact. David DeWitt discusses the failure of many men today to mature, and it's the the teen culture that keeps everybody locked in this. He says, a man is an increasingly hard thing to find. We live in a society of boys, 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60-year-old boys, Many guys today seem to have the goal of maintaining a junior high mentality all the way through life. The ultimate in life seems to be retired, still a boy. I suggest there's virtually no difference between the shuffleboard courts of St. Petersburg, Florida, where the retirees are, and the parties at Daytona Beach. The proof of my suggestion is that those playing shuffleboard would be at Daytona Beach if they were 50 years younger and dared go out in a swimsuit. They've not developed into men at all. They've just gotten older. And he's saying, if they had developed into men, it wouldn't even be a thought that they ought to be at Daytona Beach. They've matured way beyond that mentality. He said, the proof, uh, he said um, today, many seem to agree with the ad, I don't want to grow up because maybe if I did, I wouldn't be a Toys R Us kid. He said, there are at least three state major stages in the development of a male, boy, man, and patriarch. This means there are two major transitions he must make if he's to fulfill the character God gave him. As a boy, he must decide to be a man. And as a man, he must decide to be a patriarch. A boy, he said, is a male who is generally chaotic, not yet having established order for his life. When I was a young boy growing up on a cattle farm, uh, my cousins and I loved to go with my grandpa to the sale barn to buy cattle, to buy calves, to fatten up and sell. And that was, that was an exciting place to go. It's about the most excitement there is around on a cattle farm, go to a sale barn. And um, we'd watch those guys, you know, do the auction stuff with their thumb for their votes and that kind of thing. But the neatest thing about it was that grandpa would always buy us an orange crush and some peanuts. And, uh, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. And, um, but he would only take one of us. I had a cousin who was my age, and we, we liked to go to do things together. And he only lived a, half a, mile, on a, a mile and a half away on another farm. And um, Johnny and I would beg Grandpa to take us to the cell barn. And he'd say, I, you know, I won't take both of you. you know, and you could make these arguments, you know, well, you know, we're, we're just boys, but we can do a half a man's work and two of us will you know, be like a man. And, and he would say, if I take a boy, I get a half a man's work done. If I take two boys, I get no work done. <laughs> and the, the point is, every little boy brings a certain amount of chaos into the scene, and you double the boys and you have doubled the chaos. You haven't necessarily doubled the work. And uh, that's what, that's what he's, he's referring to here. David DeWitt is referring to it. A boy is a male who is generally chaotic, not yet having established order for his life. And, and I want you to notice some key words as we go along. Order is one of them that comes up in these discussions. And responsibility is another one. And we, we dare not just throw those off and say, well, you know, that's, that's from the 40s or the 50s. No, that's, that's a biblical mindset here we have to get. A man, second one, a man is a male who has taken on the responsibility, you see the word there, for establishing order for himself and for his immediate family. That is immediate circle of friends and co-workers if he's single. A patriarch is a man who has taken on the responsibility for establishing maturity, that is wisdom, as a way of life for himself and applying it to his extended family. He said we can also look at it this way. A boy is a chaotic male who has not yet taken on the discipleship of himself. A man is an orderly male who has taken on the discipleship of himself, brought order into his life, and is now bringing it into his immediate family. A patriarch is a mature father who has taken on the discipleship of an extended family. He's looking at bringing order into many people's lives. He goes on and says, What makes a boy a boy is that he pursues chaos. He has not ordered his life. His life is not yet headed in a direction. He lacks discipline to accomplish tasks. He has not taken significant ownership of values or virtues. What turns a boy into a man? This is the most important and most basic transition in the life of a male, and it is where most of us fail. If a boy does not become a man, all future development is merely a fabrication of the real thing. All he can do is pretend and try to get the image right. Of course, a boy will get bigger and older, but size and age do not make a man. Manhood is a spiritual decision a boy must make. If he doesn't make this decision... He will remain a boy all his life. A boy is chaotic. His challenge is to become orderly. And men, we, we, have, to, we have to think about that our, ourselves, and, and, and particularly you younger men, but some of us older men as well. Um, I tell the men students at the university, if you walk into your society room or into a classroom and there's more chaos because you arrived, you're still a boy. If there's more order because you're there, You're a man. If when you walk into your room, there's more chaos in your room because you arrived, you're still a boy. That doesn't mean we can't have fun together, we can't have a good time together, but a boy is just bringing chaos with him all the time. And a man brings order to his environment and to the situation around him. Next paragraph. um, Many men, teens and above, are locked into the mindset of the average American junior high youth. His heart is easily captured by the latest fashions, pop and reality show idols, superheroes, electronic games, sports personalities, junk foods and sexual enticements both real and virtual, chemical stimulants both legal and illegal, and the crude and sensual humor and violence of the most popular video clips and blockbuster movies. This is a junior high boy. He is easily bored and resists correction. He endures work and school as necessary evils between pursuits of pleasurable experiences offered on the midway of the world's carnival. Spiritually, this kind of male has little tolerance for preaching unless it is high in entertainment value. For the time will come, Paul says, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths." And instead of spending the formative years preparing for adult responsibility, these years are thrown away in the pursuit of pleasure. Even the world is noticing this mindset that and it shows no sign of decline in, in the culture with the young men and even with the women. And a new phenomenon of extended adolescence is not uncommon in 30-somethings. Uh, another author, Diana West, who I, I don't, uh, I've read her book. I don't know that she's a believer or not. Probably not. Diana West, a syndicated columnist for the Washington Times, laments this culture's phenomena, this cultural phenomenon in her book, The Death of the Grown-Up. Here's what she said. Once there was a world without teenagers, literally. Teenager, the world itself doesn't pop into the lexicon much, more, much before 1941. This speaks volumes about the last few millennia. In all those centuries... Nobody thought to mention teenagers because there was nothing apparently to think of mentioning. In considering what I call the death of the grown-up, it is important to keep a fix on this fact that for all but this most recent episode of human history, there were children and there were adults. Children in their teen years aspired to adulthood, even in the play of children. Um, t- children male children played Games that were miniature adult vocations they played with trucks and tractors and their guns like army men and things like this there was no middle teenager area that you you were if if you were a child you were you couldn't wait till you were an adult and the girls were playing their house and dollies and cooking and all that kind of stuff the way the adult women did so all of the children were aspiring to be adults She says, significantly, they didn't aspire to adolescence. Now children can't wait to be a teenager. That is a tragedy. Certainly adults didn't aspire to remain teenagers, and today we have a lot of adults trying to stay teenagers. That's a tragedy too. A lot of things have changed, she says. For one thing, turning 13 nowadays, instead of bringing children closer to the adult world, now launches them into a teen universe. For another, due to the permeated hold our culture has placed on the maturation process, that's where they're likely to find most adults in that teen universe. The National Academy of Sciences has, in 2002, redefined adolescence as a period extending from the onset of puberty around 12 to 30. These are grown ups who haven't left childhood. What has also disappeared is an appreciation for what goes along with maturity, forbearance, and honor. Patience and responsibility, perspective and wisdom, sobriety, decorum and manners, and the wisdom to know what is appropriate and when. Etched into our consciousness in the universal shorthand of Hollywood and Madison Avenue is a notion that life is either wild or boring cool or uncool, unzipped or straight-laced, at least secretly licentious or just plain dead. And, and that junior high mentality really is the mentality that we find in Proverbs Simpleton. Um, the, the teenager today is allowed ironically by the adults in his life to cultivate a pleasure ethic that leads to further disintegration of the fool who is ruined by his desires." and as west points out that's where most of the adults have been as well you know we have 50 year old women today who just are just depressed because they have a wrinkle on their face 50 year old women and 50 year old men are supposed to have wrinkles 50 year old women are not supposed to look like 25 year old girls but the teen culture has attracted everybody on both ends the young people toward the teen culture And the adults toward the teen culture and I'll tell you who's driving the teen culture the marketplace is driving the teen culture and by the way Diana West documents that all the way through her book it's 17 magazine was the one who pretty much invented the adolescent teen culture and they did it for the marketplace because here was now in the and this was in the early 40s now we have some affluence coming into America and here is a whole group of people who are a wonderful market to, spell, to, to spend money, uh, to, to draw money from. And they created a whole teen universe and now the tragic thing is everybody wants to live in it and nobody wants to be an adult. And she makes the point is that the primary difference between a child and adult is the use of the word No. Now, she's not a fundamentalist, and that's what she said. An adult is the one who says, no, no, I won't buy that. I can't afford it. No, I won't do that. It's not appropriate. Children don't do that. Those are the things adults do. No, I won't be doing that because I've got to be doing this, and it's more important. That's adult mindset. And that is not what the teen universe is teaching. And, it's, and it, is, it is hurting the church. And now the churches are becoming teen universes with entertainment uh, mindsets as well. And so now we lock the church and God's people into the teen universe. That's a tragedy, folks. There are no adults who are saying, no, we will not do that. No, we cannot do that. No, you can't spend your time there. No, I won't spend my money here. And Diana West said the most important the most important distinction between a teenager, between a child and adult is the use of the word no. An adult is, and I've heard somebody else say, an adult is somebody who is a parent to himself. He will say him, he will tell himself the same things a good parent would tell him and then he does them. So the teen mindset, sabotage is the strength of manhood today. And these are the things that are working against us and working against the men that we disciple, that we went to Christ in this world and try to disciple because they have been saturated with this in this world. Thirdly, um, oh, the other, I got those pictures in early. Um, let me back up first. Sensuality sabotages the strength of manhood today. The first paragraph in your notes is that the heart of biblical manhood is a strength born of godliness. And we'll look at this tomorrow, more tomorrow. A man who is not godly is like a car without an engine. He can only pretend he is going somewhere while he polishes the outside and plays with the accessories. These are my, these are my, uh, the, the two men in my family. Um, this is Willie. Willie's a 74 standard Beetle. And I mean, that was Herbie. This is Willie. I do know the names of my cars. Uh, this is uh, Willie's 66 sunroof. We, um, my daughters name the cars. Volkswagens have to have names. That just goes with it. If you got a Volkswagen, you got to have a name for it. Uh, some years ago, And and so my daughters named these cars. Michelle said, that looks like a Willie. So she named it Willie. Um, Some years ago, we bought a a used Grand Cherokee Limited and had that for a couple of years. And it was several years old, but it it was a nicer car than we've ever had. When I brought it home, we got this really good deal on it. When I brought it home, I asked my daughters, "What, what do you want to call this? And my youngest daughter looked at it and she said, we should call it, sir <laughs> anyway these are not sirs this is willie and uh, uh herbie but when i bought both of these bugs uh, the herbie i got for one dollar and willie i bought for a little bit more than that but neither one of them had an engine uh or an engine that worked and they were both seized engines and um so the, 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 mo- the most important part of the car is missing. It's that engine. And I could, I could sit in this car and turn on the lights and run the windshield wipers and honk the horn and play the radio and make motor sounds with my mouth while I shift through the gears, but I'm not going anywhere. And that, that really hit me that that's what it's like for me as a man if I don't have godliness All I can do is make sounds like a man and do some things that look like what men might do, but I have no real virility. I have no guts, no godliness that really makes for a man. I mentioned here a man who is godly is like a barrow on a hog farm. He can throw his weight around like a boar, but he has no true virility. A a, a barrow is a castrated male hog. And you do that so they're not so rambunctious out in the yard and tearing everybody else up, and, and uh, so they put on a little more fat and all that kind of thing. But they don't reproduce. And, and I, I say this reverently, but a man without godliness has a castrated soul. He does not have what it takes to be a man. He won't have courage, he won't have the right kind of compassion, he has a hard time with commitment. These are major parts of Christian character that are out of his soul, and he will not reproduce. This godliness is a core part of it, and we're going to be talking about that as we go along. The simple man goes after the sensual woman as an ox goes to the slaughter, Proverbs says, and that I've shared in in church here. That's that's very um, picturesque imagery for me as well coming from a cattle farm. Because I'd love to go, I loved to go with my grandpa and with my dad to, to uh, not only to the sale barn to buy the cattle, but then once they're fattened up, I loved going with them to the stockyards to sell the cattle to the meat packing plant. And uh, you would, you would load. We'd get all. The, we had ten feedlots, and you'd get all these the cattle that were ready to go into one feedlot, and and then you would get the, take them up the the chute, and they'd get into the cattle truck, and we would drive the 70 miles to Sioux Falls to the meat packing plant. And those cattle, you know, they, they have no idea what's coming. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, looking around. You can see their heads sticking out the side of the cattle truck, and they're just looking around and just having a wonderful time. And then they, you, you get to the stockyards, and you unload them in another chute and put them in other pens, and those pens go through different things. And finally, they end up in a chute inside the building and um, their neck gets caught in a, in a stock thing, and then somebody puts a 22 hollow-point slug in their head, and they're instantly killed, and then they open the side of that chute, and they fall, they roll down this incline, cement incline, to a, a pit in the bottom of that room, and there's a big drain there, and they cut the neck of it, and they drain all the blood, and they take a couple of hooks, and they yank it up to the top by a hoist, and it's on its way to the meatpacking. These cattle had no idea what's going on. They didn't see it coming. And that's exactly what Proverbs is saying here. The sensual man goes like an ox, goes to the slaughter. He has no idea where this is going to end up. Or is a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. That means in the Hebrew. Don't click on her URL. It's right there in the Hebrew. Check it out. For she hath cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house or her website is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. And he says later on, give not thy strength the godliness of your heart to women, to these strange women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. And I'm not going to say anything more about that. We spent a whole seminar a couple of years ago on on the purity thing. But this is a major part of what is sabotaging manhood today with sensuality. And it's a journey that all of us have to take if we have gotten off path here. Um, and it's a journey that we have to lead our sons and our grandsons. Robert Lewis opens his book, and this is a great little book, Raising a Modern Day Knight, A Father's Role in Guiding His Son to Authentic Manhood. And we'll have, we have copies of that out here as well. Um, he starts off this book with chapter one, Manhood, Don't Let Your Son Leave Home Without It. And I, I, would, I would encourage you men who are, who are young adults and, and perhaps single... Um, And you haven't had dads who have mentored you in these kinds of things. Get some of these books and fill in the gaps for your own life and so you'll know what to do with your sons. And uh, don't be afraid of reading some of these books about how to raise a son. You'll find some things that a good dad should have done to you and you don't fuss at your dad and you don't excoriate him and get bitter toward him if it didn't happen, but, but fill in the gaps and you can do that by this kind of reading. And some of us are struggling because we did leave home without an understanding of this. And this weekend, I hope, to that we'll address that vision in, uh, for our own lives. So with that, let's start with a definition of biblical manhood. And basically, it is biblical or godly dominion. And when I use the word dominion, it kind of brings up the word of... of uh, heavy hand, dominate or something, and that's not the way the Scriptures use it necessarily, but it is talking about a biblical, not just a biblical authority, but a biblical responsibility. Anytime somebody gives you authority, they give you authority because you have responsibility. And if you have been given responsibility, you generally have been given a commensurate authority to carry out that responsibility. And I, 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 although we, you and I have been given authority in many different areas, particularly in our homes... I want us to think of the other end of it, and that is our responsibility. I want us to think of the word dominion as responsibility taking, because that's the flip side of the authority issue in in dominion. Um, And the first point I want to make here is that the responsibility for man to exercise dominion was given at creation. God hardwired this into you and me and gave us commands. Follow along in Genesis 1 here. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. The New American Standard says rule, bringing that idea of of, uh, rulership out. Let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. Pastor Pastor Vaughn has quoted this many times about why it's important to do fishing. Um, God gave us this rule over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. God has dominion, and he's given man certain dominion. In the image of God created he him. This is part of the image. Male and female he created them, created he them. And God blessed them. Now, what I want you to notice here is that God broadens this dominion also to the woman under the headship of the man. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fall of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the, the earth. So the first note there is that this responsibility was given to Adam first in verse 26, and then both to, to both Adam and Eve in verse 28, he was, he, he was to be, Adam was to be the head of the family unit carrying out this responsibility. Eve was to be the helper in the responsibility assisting Adam. But their mission, the mission was the same, their roles differed. And those differences are rooted in creation. They're not a result of the fall. Psalm 8 reflects that same creation mandated responsibility for dominion. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. And that is repeated. Mark Shansky has a wonderful book called Godly Dominion um, that is out in, or or, uh, Manly Dominion, I'm sorry, that, that also is out here for sale. He sums up the theme of dominion. He says, God has bestowed on man both supremacy and a mandate supremacy over the animal kingdom, and a mandate, both an authority and an assignment. Man is God's deputy and representative on the earth. Therefore, man is obligated to exercise an assertive, aggressive, and goodly rule over the various realms of God's creation. There is no room for passivity in manhood. It goes against everything that dominion means. Dominion means to take charge, make it happen, and the opposite of that is passivity. And it's hardwired in, into, into mail. Ever, ever watch little kids? Ever watch little boys? Remember when you were a little boy? I watched my grandsons. Every stick is a weapon, folks. You know that. Nobody has to teach you that. Every stick, it's a, it's a lightsaber or it's a sword or it's a gun. Every, every piece of, every stick is a weapon. A, a bath towel is a wonderful cape. Every dirt pile is a mountain that must be climbed. And you must keep off every other boy who tries to climb it. That's just hardwired into guys. Trees exist to be climbed. Trees exist to hold forts that you build into them. Recently, uh, there's a vacant lot next door to my my son-in-law, my daughter, and my grandsons. It was being prepared for a new house. And... When the flatbed trailer arrived with a bulldozer, can you imagine what a six-year-old, what went through a six-year-old boy's mind, and a five-year-old boy's mind, and a three-year-old boy's mind? This, I mean, it doesn't get much better than this when you got that kind of stuff right next door, and it's digging big old holes and that kind of thing, and it's fun to watch. And that boy, that it doesn't get a whole lot better than that until the workmen go home. Then you take dirt clods and you throw it at that blade of that bulldozer and those grenades explode. And I mean, this is great stuff. My daughters never had any inclination to do anything like that. In fact, they didn't want to get their hands dirty. But you can't keep a little boy's hands clean. There is this sense that God has said that that stuff out there is to be ruled. Now, His own heart has to be tamed and the fleshliness has to be sanctified out of it. But God made us to be like that, guys. He didn't make us to be passive. That's something our flesh teaches us to do and our culture neuters us to do, to be passive. I grew up on a farm. There are shelter belts to be explored and haylofts to play in and animals to chase. I tell you, my... I have a confession here. I had recurring nightmares as a young boy, about eight and nine, of cattle chasing me across the pasture. And I would climb up into the top of the haystack to get away from these cattle, and then they would eat the haystack. And just before I was lunch, these, these apparently were carnivorous cattle, because they were going to eat me. Or, or the other version of this dream is that I ran into the house and they're putting their heads into the windows and they're trying to break down the doors. And the reason for that is because in the feedlots that we had, there were uh, the, the gates for the people to go, for the, the men to go in. There they they were just uh, open areas in, in the wood fences and then kind of a big fence uh, behind that and you would just walk around through there. And um, I would hide behind that with my slingshot. And, and, you know, there may be 50, 60 head of cattle in this, in this uh, uh, feedlot that's probably about two-thirds of this place. And when they would get close, I would put a rock right in their rump because i love to watch them kick. Now, if my, grandparent, if my grandfather or my dad ever caught, I would, they would do some kicking <laughs> you know, on, on my rump. Uh, and because they don't like their meat bruised and all that kind of stuff. But, but it, I guess this was, this was the, the revenge of the cattle in my dreams because they were coming after meat in my dreams, and I couldn't get away. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that goes on. That's, that's what cattle are to be, to be ruled, folks. And um, it's just part of it. But there, it was also a place of chores. There were eggs to pick, and that's what I did as a little boy. Seven and eight years old, my, my, my job was to pick eggs. My mom had a couple of hundred hen, uh, hens. And um, so I'd go out and pick eggs and then sit in the cellar with a warm bucket of water and a sponge and wipe all the manure off that and put them in the little uh, boxes to take it to the, uh, to the uh, place in town. And mom would sell that and, and get her grocery money. But there was hay to mow and bale and there was just a lot of work to do. And, and you, just, you just kind of grew up understanding work as a part of what it means to be a man and be responsible. And it is this dominion instinct that is what drives research and adventure. It, it's what puts men on the moon and harnesses the wind and the sun and the waves and the land for the good of mankind. God made men to do that. And it's why we want to go fast and fix up our homes and our yards and plant gardens and hunt wildlife and land new accounts and broker merges and cut production costs. There is adventure in those things. And God made us for that. And in the believing husband and father... This sense of adventure and accomplishment and dominion must oversee the spiritual development of our wife and children. We come naturally to do all of those other things. It is not natural in our sinful nature to use this dominion instinct to disciple our family correctly. This is where we get lazy and passive. And there are foes of the flesh in our home and foes of the world in our home that have to be kept at bay and time that has to be intentionally carved out of the day to lead this household in family worship. And a man's got to exercise dominion. He's got to take responsibility for that. In your notes here, the next paragraph says, when applied to the home, dominion takes a form of formative instruction. It's a phrase coined by Ted Tripp to describe instruction that forms or shapes our children. And by the way, I highly, highly recommend uh, you, many of you have read Shepherding a Child's Heart. The follow-up book to that is uh, Instructing a Child's Heart. It just came out this summer. I've read the book and watched the DVD series on it, and I commend it to all of you. It, it is all about, okay, we've got to shepherd our child's heart. How do we do that? How do we get, try to reach the heart on things? The Instructing a Child's Heart is what do you teach him about God and about life? What do you teach your child about work? What do you teach him about sowing and reaping? What do you teach him about doing things and waiting for the reward instead of having everything now? Tremendous principles in that book uh, uh, instructing a child's heart. Uh, It is not a single event, but a lifetime of interaction that is based on God's revelation. We must actively teach our children and live the reality that God defines life He tells and shows us the truth about what is valuable, what is worth living for and dying for, and what is worth doing and being, and what gives our lives significance. A man's responsibility for dominion can be used for immeasurable good, but if misused or not used when necessary, can bring horrific evil. So that's why this is where we need to uh, jump into what is the essential vision for us. The The essence of biblical manhood is godly dominion for the glory of God and the good of others. This is not dominion for our own pleasure. I'm not saying we can't hunt and fish and we can't have any pleasure. I'm not not against pleasure. But we don't rule our families for our pleasure. We rule them for their good. This church has a group of men and a pastor who oversee the functions of this church for the good of the people and the glory of God. And they have dominion in this church, and rightly so. Said another way, we we could substitute, as I said earlier, the word responsibility-taking for dominion and catch the flavor that we need most, perhaps, in our culture today. Um, The first point says, Foundationally, this means that a real man stewards the creation, including his own body and gifts and resources for the good of others and the glory of God. And a man feels the weight of responsibility. If you've got a pen there, circle responsibility. And assumes risks. Uh, Circle the word risk. Those are two critical adjectives describing godly dominion, responsibility and risk-taking. And I'm going to give you several quotes here again by evangelical authors and pastors and teachers to help you understand the flavor of this concept of dominion. Robert Lewis's work, defining uh, working definition, captures a mindset of manhood this way. He says, someone, "A man is someone who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility." Leads courageously and expects a greater reward. Stu Weber says that masculinity means initiation. To be masculine is to take initiative, to provide direction, security, stability, and order, to lead, to head, to husband, as as you would if you were, if you had a vineyard, you would husband the vineyard. It means you do something with that, with those vines. And to be a husband means you do something with this relationship to foster the growth of your wife. Initiation is the bottom line of masculinity. It means taking the lead, the lead in providing, protecting, mentoring, and befriending. It means caring for developing our mates, our children, and ourselves. It means taking the lead in apologizing, the lead in seeking forgiveness, the lead in vulnerability. Masculinity means initiation. Steve Farrar defines masculinity as a willingness to lead, to assume responsibility and be a self-starter. Masculine, masculine men take initiative. It's an inclination to despise passivity and do the right thing. I don't mean that you and I need to despise passive men. We need, our heart needs to break about passive men. But we need to despise passivity as he says, and do the right thing. It's a willingness to stand alone and be unpopular. It's a desire to protect and provide for one's family and those who are weak and disadvantaged. It requires courage, honor, and the willingness to sacrifice, even if necessary, one's own life for the good of others. That's masculinity. All of these definitions describe dominion. A certain willingness to step up to the plate and make a difference. No man can be fully masculine who is not exercising godly dominion in the spheres of influence in which God has placed him. And if you're sweeping a floor at work, you are the one in dominion over that floor. And you do that for the glory of God and for the good of people. In other words, he courageously faces responsibility in the present with an eye to the future. He's not looking for a pat on the back now He serves the Lord Christ and he'll be rewarded by the Lord Christ even if nobody else sees it here on earth. This dominion, as we shall see, manifests itself as a man develops and uses strength to bring order into his own life and protection, provision, and leadership into the lives of those he oversees. He will do this regardless of the risk to himself. This is what God did in the creation. He took a world that was without form and void and used his powers to bring order and life out of the chaos for the good of the creatures. He would create and for his own glory. This is part of what it means for a man to be made in the image of God. Um, I want to look at some descriptors here now of the nature of that godly dominion. The nature of godly dominion is God-fearing, gospel-centered, and grace-enabled dominion. And I think as we unpack those three phrases, God-fearing, gospel-centered, and grace-enabled, we'll get a flavor of what it means for the kind of godly dominion that God has called you and me to. First of all, God-fearing, it is a God-fearing dominion. A man must know his place under God. And isn't this, gentlemen, isn't this the core of all of our battles? This is where I fight. God has told me certain things, and I want to do something else. He's told me how to think a certain way. I want to think another way. He's told me not to think about certain things, and I want to think about those. This is the core of the battle, is for me to take my place under god he is in dominion over me and if i don't really understand how god has dominion over me and rightly respond to that i will not know how to rightly have dominion over other people in the spheres that god has and if, if, if we get this wrong we get everything wrong and the nature of us all isaiah 53 6 says we have all all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way and by the way, this is the first lesson we have to teach our children, is it not? You cannot have your own way, um, and that starts really, really early. I want to look at it this way. In, in uh, I, I covered this in Creator for His Glory, and I won't expand on it greatly here. But I want you to, I want you to, ca- I want you to get this idea, because it, it, if we don't get this, we don't, we don't rightly become the kind of God-fearing responsibility takers that we ought to be the the grand reality the most significant part of reality is that god is a creature and i'm a, god is a creator and i'm a creature now that, that seems really obvious to it but that's what we get wrong we act as if we made ourselves and we can rule ourselves and we get that wrong and or that we uh, th- that we don't need god he, okay he created us but we can live the rest of our life okay we don't need god that is insanity if you needed somebody to make you you need somebody to maintain you. This building needed men to make it. And guess what? It needs men to maintain it too. It is not a self-building building and it's not a self-maintaining building and you and I are not self-sustaining people either. We need God. If this, is not, if this building does not have the intervention of men, it falls apart. And if we as men don't have the intervention of God, we fall apart too. Well, the application of that is what I call the grand reality principle. God exercises over us godly dominion. He has greatness in all of his powers, and he has goodness. And we can thank him for both of those. Um, I am glad that God doesn't just have greatness, and, but he's not good. Um, that when I, when I was in high school and took Latin in ninth grade we studied roman gods and the in in latin names and all that kind of stuff and and the mortals lived in constant fear because they they, these gods had powers over their different areas of of the world the sea or whatever um man they had this great power but they were unpredictable you didn't know the gods were not in essence the gods were not good and therefore, you didn't know what they were going to do. In fact, most mortals were very happy if a God never got involved in their life. Because if a God ever got involved in your life, life got real messy real fast. Well, our God is not only great, but he's good. And what that, what that brings to us is a spirit. Let's see if I can get this working here. For just a minute. Whoops, wrong button. Um, Never mind. If I am under God and I see God is great and good, what that fosters in me when I bow to God is a submission with humility and hope. The fact that God is great is what makes me respond in humility when I see his greatness. He is far above me. When I see that he is good, That's what gives me hope. That God will help in all of this. Now, here's something for us, men. If you and I are in authority, you and I, and and, and we are in many, many different avenues of life, then you and I, if you and I are to have godly dominion, we must exercise our greatness, our powers, our authorities with goodness. We can't just hammer people to try to humble them without giving them hope. In all of this, am I making sense? And the only way a man will have goodness in his greatness is if he's bowing, bowing before his goodness, before the greatness and the goodness of his God. And God has given us many hard things to do, has He not? We've got to assemble our families together. We've got to deal with problems in our families. We've got to deal with problems at work. We have to take initiative here and we've got to do this and take responsibility over here. This is not an easy part of life. And if you and I are not bowing under the godly dominion of our God, we will not have hope in our responsibilities. In fact, you can look at this seminar tonight and say, and this weekend, and say, oh man, I just I found a whole bunch of more stuff I got to do. I don't, I don't like finding all that stuff out. Well, if we're without hope, what's the problem? We're not seeing a God who is great and can do this in us and has the goodness to want to do it in us. See what I'm saying? If you lack humility, folks, you get under God. And see his greatness. If you lack hope, you get under God too. You go to God and you see his goodness to you and his greatness that he can do this. God has given us amazing responsibilities as men on this earth. And a good bit of the passivity today is because a lot of men don't feel prepared to do anything. And the way you feel prepared to start doing that is spend a lot of time learning what your God is like. And he's powerfully great. Which means if I'm doing what he wants me to do, then he will empower me to do that. And he's good enough to help me do that. Now, if a man is operating in a mean-spirited, heavy-fisted, mean-spirited way with his family, he hasn't seen God recently. Because if he's spending any time before God, he's dealing with his dominion with goodness as well as greatness. It all, this, and this is called fearing God. God. The whole aspect of fearing God means that I bow in humility with this reverential awe under the greatness of God. But not only do I bow in awe, but I have great hope that He accepts me here. I'm His and He is mine. And even though He is great, I'm safe. That's an amazing thought to me. With His, the kind of greatness that He has, talking about His holiness and all of that, and considering what I am, I'm in trouble Except for one thing, he's also really good. And he's provided salvation for me and the forgiveness of my sins, and placed his spirit in me, and has given me and has adopted me as his son and has and has given me his power and his word, and that gives me hope. Because he's a God that does this kind of thing. I'm gonna let you read that in more detail if you want in in the follow-up points. Of godly dominion and godly submission. I'm just basically repeating what I've summarized here. I want to drop down to what is point B, the trademark of those who fear God. Um, Let's drop up, let's go up one more point, up to godly submission. When a man has rightly seen God as the one over all, it has two effects on him. He is humbled because he knows God rules over him, and he is glad to have it so. His humility is manifested in repentance and dependence. If you and I truly are God-fearing men, repentance will be an ongoing, regular thing in our lives, and so will dependence. But number two, he has also given much hope. This great God is also good to him. Point A, even if his dominion responsibilities or his submission responsibilities under this great God are difficult, he has hope. You don't have to become discouraged if God's putting you in a position of a ruler and giving you dominion. Because the great God will empower you to do it and and because he's good, he will do that. And if you're discouraged in your leadership, you're not seeing the God who's over you. Because he'll give you a great deal of hope. And point B, he is also tempered in his own use of power because God is over him. You don't have to be on a power kick. When you're under God, um, you're not on a power kick because you know who has power. And you can exercise greatness with goodness because you're not trying to prove your strength. You know your strength is from God. It's not coming from you anyway. Point D, then, the trademark Of those who fear God. This trademark, and you notice a little TM over on the side there, this trademark, this whole concept ought to be stamped upon every relationship of a God fearing believer. Point A, he ought to always exercise his greatness, his power, with goodness because God is sovereign over him. And point B, he ought always to follow his rulers. I have rulers, I have bosses, I have pastors. I have pastoral staff that are over me in this church. And he ought always to follow his rulers with humility and hope because God is sovereign over his his circumstances and therefore over his rulers. God picked my rulers. God picked my parents. There is no room here under authority for being a cynic, a complainer, a griper, and having a critical spirit. Why? Why? Because God's over all of it, and he chose who are my rulers. That gives me hope. And and if if we are cynics and complainers and gripers, we may as well get a marker and write on the back of a T-shirt, I do not fear God, I have no humility and I have no hope, pray for me. There is no room in Christian maturity for griping and complaining and whining and a critical spirit even on a blog. There is no room for it in Christianity. For a leader to exercise his dominion, his greatness, with goodness, he must have learned humility while under the dominion of God and other authorities and must have learned that his hope lies in God. Men who rebel against the God-appointed dominion over them, whether it's your RA on the hall, if you're a student or your supervisor or the dean of men, or whether it's a faculty member that's over you, or a work supervisor that's over you in town or on campus. Men who rebel against a God-appointed dominion over them can never be God-fearing rulers, leaders. They will not have the humility to be good when they lead, nor will they have the hope to use their power, their greatness, when it's difficult to do so. So, reviewing here tonight what we're just hitting on. Number one, the responsibility for men to exercise dominion was given at creation. And, and by the way, when, when I, I talk about little boys climbing hills and, and things like that, I'm not saying that every little boy has to do that. Most generally, they do. Um, you know, even, even in the three grandsons, they all have different tempers. A couple of them like to do that more than another one does. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to be gung-ho and throwing dirt clods to be a man. that They're hardwired to be a man. But there is this sense that there's something to be conquered in a man. And whether it's his music, or whether it's um, his sports, or whether it's the, the, the mound back behind the, the, the lot, or, or whatever, there is this sense, there's something here to do, and I can, I'm going to conquer that. But number two, the essence, the essential vision of biblical manhood is godly dominion for the glory of God and for the good of others. And godly dominion is God-fearing, and that's what we looked at tonight. Gospel-centered. We'll look at what I'm supposed to be using this dominion to do something with the gospel. And it's beyond just passing out tracts. And it's grace-enabled dominion. And tomorrow morning, I hope to flesh out that whole thing so that when we walk away from this session and the session tomorrow morning, that we understand what godly dominion looks like. It, is, it has a God-fearing component in it that recognizes this and lives like this. And it has a gospel-centered point to it. And it has a grace-enabled center. We need a lot of grace to be able to do what God has called us to do as men. And we are, and gentlemen, we are swimming upstream in our culture. Every, every ad on television, most programs on television are sabotaging what we're learning here. And what, you're not, This isn't the first time you've heard this stuff. Maybe in this package. But everything around us in the culture is sabotaging this. And we're, we're swimming upstream. But we must for the good of other people and for the glory of God. So that's where we're heading. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and acknowledge that you indeed are great. And just the fact that we can approach your throne is a mark of your greatness. Because of what you have done for us through the Lord Jesus In his sacrifice at Calvary on our behalf, and now stands before your throne, even tonight interceding for us. And this congregation is filled with men tonight who are in various stages of of their growth in the likeness to your son. And we all need your help. We all need you to breathe hope into our souls as we look at these responsibilities, which can crush us if we do not see you in the picture. I pray that you would help us to that end. Help us to become the kind of men you want us to be in our homes and especially as we raise our children and grandsons and granddaughters and as we disciple other men. Help us to that end, we pray. Help us to get this big picture plowed into our souls and teach us
0: and work in us, we pray in your name. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. To find out more about Crossview Church, visit us online at crossvieworville.org.